Well, as I sort of already declared, it's going to be kind of an interesting message. My hope here at the outset is to lay sort of a biblical foundation for where I anticipate and expect that God will take our church in the next year. Uh, The first half of the message here, we'll be looking at some different texts to kind of lay a groundwork. And then I would say probably the last third of the message or maybe the last half of the message will kind of be more the practical outworkings of uh, what this sort of philosophy and strategy could, could end up looking like in our particular body in 2021. I want to begin by saying um, kind of what I just prayed. You know, I, I get that 2020 has been hard. We're excited about 2021 and beyond. Um, it's important for you to know, as someone who may be watching this uh, locally around here, you may be around the world, but, but for whatever reason you've dialed in this morning to, uh, to be a part of the service, um, you're someone who feels at least slightly connected to Fullerton Free. And as an elder at this church and as a leader in this church, we're, we're constantly sort of looking to go, okay, God, where are you leading us, right? Where are you teaching us? What are the things that we need to grow and learn in? And as we look at 2021, I think there's some exciting things that will be made manifest in our body that come out of some of our, some of our learnings from 2020. In the midst of 2020, for all its difficulties and grief, it has provided a much-needed moment to reconsider the redemptive potential of what we've learned. Uh, this church has risen to the occasion, I think, in 2020, and there are so many cool things that have happened in the midst of some of the obstacles. Uh, uh, newly strengthened relationships with our city, newly strengthened relationships with our local law enforcement, newly strengthened relationships with uh, school districts. We've had the opportunity to distribute food and supplies and medicine to those who are at high risk, who can't get out of their homes. We've been able to go and help people figure out how to get their TVs to dial in the live stream or to dial in a closer walk broadcast. Or what we've We've provided technical assistance. We, uh, we went out and we bought a couple of circus tents this year, of all things. Who would have thought we'd end up doing that? But those tents have provided us the opportunity to do weddings and memorials, to open up space for even other uh, kingdom ministries, other churches in our city and surrounding cities who had no place to meet because their rental facilities were closed down. We've had the opportunity to partner with other churches. Um, we've had the opportunity this last year to start doing worship services up on the parking garage. I guarantee you that if we'd done any brainstorming two years ago and said, hey, what, what kind of new ministry should we launch? Nobody would have said, hey, let's do worship services on the top of the parking garage. But I think that what we found in the last year is that that's actually a really beautiful place to worship together. And in this season, uh, it, there's a way for us to do that safely up there. Uh, We had the opportunity this year to launch new internship programs. We've launched new ministry to young professionals. Uh, We figured out how to do small group gatherings on Zoom. I know many of us are sick of the word. It feels like a curse word. But we figured out some really exciting things in the midst of the obstacles. We've been flexible. Uh, We've been been pivoting kind of moment by moment. Our teams have figured out, you know, when, when we were able to do services in here with 100 people, we did services with 100 people. And when we had to go up to the garage, we'd done that. And we, we've just, we've learned a lot this year. And, I, and I've been really impressed with our ability to follow the leading of God's spirit, to model the heart of Christ in the midst of a crisis year for everybody. But one of the things we've also learned in the midst of this year, because one of the primary things that's sort of been taken off the table, if you will, is our ability to do large gatherings. I'm, I'm in the room teaching this morning in our main worship center, and there are like eight people here. The people from the worship team and a couple of other technical folks but, but this room is largely empty, and it's been largely empty all year. And in some ways, that causes us a lot of grief and a lot of pain and a lot of sadness. But in other ways, it's allowed us to recalibrate, at least for me, the ways in which a large room gathering like this 
kind of got a primary focus in our church ministry over time. It starts to feel over time like the most important thing we do as a church is all getting together and being in a room like this. And so when we can't all be in a room like this because of safety reasons, it feels like we're not doing the most important thing that a church is supposed to do. But that's a misunderstanding of the most important thing of what a church is meant to do. In those moments where we feel like the most important thing we do is gather together and have a Sunday morning service at 919 or 1111, we've missed the reality that the most important thing the church is called to do is to glorify God by reaching those who've never known him with the truth of who Christ is. Revealing Christ in our world as his ambassadors is the goal of the church. Now, Obviously, one of the ways in which we, we learn and grow and strengthen each other is to be in a large group gathering or even to be in adult fellowships or some of our smaller Bible studies or you might be in a home group or a core group or whatever. Those are great strategies, but they all serve the ultimate purpose of revealing Christ, right? They all serve the ultimate purpose of glorifying God by putting Christ on display. The purpose of the church is to glorify God by revealing Christ to those who know him. But the reality is that most people who come to know Christ don't come to know Christ in a big room gathering like this. It does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But the the statistics would say that somewhere around 90% of people who put their faith in Jesus don't do so in a large room gathering like this or in a stadium evangelical crusade. Most of the time when people put their faith in Christ, you know where it happens? It happens in a one-on-one conversation, a one-on-one conversation with a parent or with a spouse. It happens sometimes in a one-on-one conversation with a mentor or a teacher. In fact, again, there's not very many people in the room here, but I would guess that if I were even just to ask the eight or so people that are in the room, how many of you put put your faith in Christ because of a personal relationship with another individual? Show me your hands. So in this room, yeah, I'm looking, at, I'm looking at 90% probably of the people that are in this room just raise their hand. One-on-one relationship is where that primarily happens. So when we talk about the primary thing the church does being the glorification of God through the revelation of Christ to those who are lost, that's the primary thing we do. Well, this big room worship thing we do or the thing we do up on the parking garage or even in some ways our adult fellowships where we as brothers and sisters are gathered together, our Bible studies, our, our study times, those equip us to do the work of the ministry, but they themselves are very seldom the place where people are actually coming to know Christ. It's usually happening in a one-on-one conversation. And that's because you and I were created to have an impact on a particular set of people. Each and every one of us are wired differently. That's the way the body's meant to work. When we come to, uh, when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just to sort of give you the biblical foundation for this way of thinking. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, talking about the body of Christ, says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If you have your Bible open in front of you and you have a pen handy, I would have you circle or underline the two words there in verse 18. God arranged, 
And then at the end of that sentence, as he chose, right? God arranged. This is God's purpose. God made us unique and different. We're not all the same. We bring different things to the table, different gifts, different passions, uh, different perspectives, different experiences, different life understandings. God arranged us uniquely, it says in 18. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So here's the first thing I want you to see as we sort of lay a foundation for where I'd like to see us go as a church in 2021. The first one is a fundamental recognition that every person that calls this church home, that is a part of the body of Christ in this local manifestation, is important and valuable. That none of us are the same. We all, I mean, there are places where we overlap, but we all bring different things. Christina has different skills and talents and abilities than I do. We've got some overlapping things, right? But, but there are distinct things that make us different. And that is true for every person who's watching the live stream today. It's true of every person that calls this church home. We're, we're made, arranged by God uniquely. We're not intended to all be the same. So there is strength in our uniqueness. There is strength in the diversity of who we are, unified in the one spirit, as it says in 1 Corinthians. I want each and every person in our church to embrace the uniqueness of who they are. With their own experience, their own talents, their own gifts, their own weaknesses, their own challenges. I want each person to go, God made me who I am for a purpose. And this isn't, this isn't just sort of, a, it's not just self-affirmation, it's God affirmation, right? So I'm not saying like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and look into the mirror and tell yourself you're good enough and smart enough. I, I'm not doing any of that. It's not self-affirmation. It's you just recognizing God made you like you are to have a particular impact that no one else can have in the same way you can. The impact you can have is unique because you are unique. Not only are each of us designed uniquely to serve a different function in the body, but each and every one of us are priests. We would join with, uh, with Martin Luther, who was sort of the first to kind of lay out the idea of the, the priesthood of the believer. We would join with him. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, as you come to him, a living stone. That's talking about Jesus. As you come to him, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This passage in First Peter says that each of us are being built up like individual stones, living stones, in a spiritual house, a residence for God's spirit to abide within, right? He abides with us uh, individually, and he abides in us corporately. We're living stones. But in that same context, he says that each of us are priests. Well, what's the, what's the importance of that? Well, the importance is to say that the guy who has a, a preaching gift like me, a teaching and preaching gift, maybe a prophetic gift like I've, I've got and I've acknowledged in my own life, 
That doesn't make me somehow more spiritual or somehow more special or somehow more interesting. Our church is not centered around any particular individual or any particular individual's gifts and callings. All of these particular gifts and callings are important. They are equally important. We are all priests, right? We don't go to a priest other than the Lord Jesus, who Hebrews taught us, is our singular high priest, the greatest high priest of all. But we are all priests. We all have access to God. We are living stones. And he called us to this. He chose us. He equipped us for it. That we would declare the excellencies of him who took us out of the darkness and into the light. Why are we a priesthood? Why are we living stones? Why have we been redeemed? Why are we chosen to be a royal people? That we would declare the excellencies of he who transformed us, took us out of darkness into the light. There's an individual responsibility as a priest, as a unique member of the body. Not only do we believe in the individual priesthood of the believer and the equality of all people who are following Christ, but we also believe in the ministry of every believer. Not just the priesthood, but the ministry. So priesthood is my relationship with God. My ministry is the work that I do with other people. We studied this not too long ago in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God gave the church, prophets, apostles, teachers, shepherds, to do what? To equip the saints. Well, who are the saints? Those the holiest people? No, no, no. That's anyone who's put their faith in Christ. Anyone who's been taken out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Anyone who's been chosen by Christ to be a part of that royal priesthood, that holy nation, right? The, the, the goal of the church, and God has equipped different roles and different functions, but the goal of the church is to equip the saints for what? The work of the ministry. The work of the ministry. That's what each and every one of us are called to do. Well, what what does that ministry look like? We're going to talk about that more. But what I'm trying to point out here is that in 2020, when the sort of big room gathering or even some of those smaller gatherings, adult fellowships and Sunday school classes and whatever, when those things were taken off the table for us, what it caused us initially to do was be really frustrated because the argument was, well, you've just removed, you know, for safety reasons, you've removed the, the most important thing we do as a church. I heard that several times. And what I've come to recognize and what I knew before, and I think what most of us knew, but sometimes we lost sight of, is that in some ways we as a people tend to over-prioritize a large gathering and to under-prioritize the priesthood of the believer and the ministry of the believer and the uniqueness and importance of each and every individual to impact the circle of people that God has uniquely put into their life. God has called each and every one of us to be the ministers. The church's job, if anything, these gatherings, whether they're, uh, whether they're smaller group gatherings or the large group gathering, is meant to be a gathering of ambassadors. It's almost like a briefing before a police, you know, before a police shift. I, I was a chaplain with the sheriff's department for a while. And every shift before they would go out on duty, they, they'd sit down and they'd have a briefing about what was going on and how best, to, how best to do the things they were called to do in that particular day. That's what the gathering of God's people is meant to be. A time when we honor Christ, we worship him together, and we are equipped to go and do the work of the ministry. That, that's the goal. But the goal was always the equipping of every saint. And sometimes we've gotten focused on the wrong thing instead of the right thing. It's, uh, it's not unlike I, uh, the very first time I got invited to go and teach at a camp in Montana. And this was probably now, it's probably been 
10 years ago, the first time we went to Montana to teach at this camp. But we went to teach at this camp in Montana, and, uh, and it was great. We got to go to Yellowstone. On the, I was there for two weeks, and in between week one and week two, they gave us a van. We drove through Yellowstone. We got to look all over. I mean, it was, we were in, uh, 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 I'm going to forget the name of some of the different cities we went to. But it was such a beautiful, it's one of the most beautiful things we've ever done as a family. And when we got back home to Long Beach, uh, we were talking with some friends, and one of, one of my friends looked at my son, Will, and he said, hey, what was your favorite part of the trip to Montana? What was the coolest thing you saw? And Will goes, I don't know if you know about this, but up in Montana, they have this thing called Arby's and they make roast beef sandwiches that are like no other, you know? And he was like, yeah, we have those, like literally there's an Arby's like two miles that way. But my kids had never been to Arby's until we went to Montana. And it was like the only restaurant in one of these little towns we drove through. So I took them to Arby's and that was Will's favorite thing about the trip to Montana. Not Yellowstone, not the giant sky, not the beautiful stars, not the lush valleys or the rivers, none of that. What he loved were the potato cakes. I think that was kind of the main thing for him. It's easy for us to focus on the wrong thing, to focus on on a tiny piece instead of the whole. The reason we read Mark 5 at the beginning of this message today, the reason we read Mark 5 is that I love the instruction of Jesus to this man from whom he has cast out the demons. Jesus shows up on the east side of the Sea of Galilee and there is a man there who is lost, fully lost, possessed by a legion of demons. The city townsfolk have done everything they can to try and contain him. They've chained him up. They've shackled him. They've left him. He's in the tombs. But he's a lost, a lost man. And Jesus sees this man and has compassion on him. He has a conversation with these demons to say, what's your name? They say we're legion because there are so many of us. And Jesus says, get out of this man. Why? Because Jesus cares about that individual. He cares about that man who has lost himself literally in that moment. There are all kinds of people in our world today who've lost themselves. Who've lost themselves, their idols. And the world will do its best to try and chain them down and to shackle them down and try and contain the problem. But the only solution when someone has completely lost themselves is to have the Lord Jesus radically break in, right? Jesus radically breaks in. The demons say, don't send us out of the country. I don't know what they were so excited about that particular country for. But the demons are like, we don't want to do any international traveling if you don't mind. Send us into the pigs, And so Jesus concedes, he gives them permission, and the demons go into the pigs, they run down into the sea and are drowned there. Well, the townspeople hear about this, and they come out to see it, and you would think that the townspeople would be excited. You would think that the townspeople would be like, yes, this guy we've been trying to help for all this time, or at least we've been trying to minimize the impact he has. This guy, Jesus healed him. What an incredible day. That's not the response. You know what the people do? When they see this man has been freed from the demon, it says they're afraid. Well, What are they afraid of? The demons are gone. At first glance, it might feel like there's nothing to be afraid of there. Can I tell you what the people are afraid of? The people are afraid of the power of Jesus to impact their economic situation. You see, a whole herd of pigs that have just been run into the Sea of Galilee represents a ginormous loss of financial wealth, right? So the people come and they see what Jesus has done and it says they're afraid. They're not afraid of demons. They're afraid of Jesus impacting their comfortability. And so they, you see what they do here? You you see what the people do? They actually beg Jesus to leave. Back to Mark chapter five. They say, would you mind getting out of here before you, I don't want you to, I don't want you to cast anything in any of my pigs. I don't want to cast any demons in any of my livestock. It says the people come and they see it and rather than rejoicing over the man who's been healed and transformed, They're afraid, and they ask him to leave. It says in verse 16, 
those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. These people are more scared of the economic impact upon their own life than they are of demons. And so they asked Jesus to go. But there's one guy, the man who was healed. By the way, it now says that he's dressed and seated and in his right mind. He was naked and chained up. Now he's dressed and seated and in his right mind at the foot of Jesus. Jesus, in verse 20, says he gets in his boats, uh, excuse me, before that. In 18, it says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. The man who had been healed... The man who'd had the demons cast out of him comes to Jesus and go, man, you changed my life. I just want to go wherever you're going to go. Let me get in the boat. You got room in the boat. Let me go with, man. I just want to be part of the entourage here. I don't, I don't want to stay with these people. I want to go with you. And Jesus stops him. This is profound. Jesus stops him and he says, I don't think so. I don't know what the man's name is here, but he looks at this man and he says, you should stay. Jesus looks at him. Look at what he says in 19. He did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus says, you could get in the boat and go with me, but there's something better for you in particular. That something better is for you to stay right here where you are and tell all the people that you know. He actually uses the word there, oikos. It's a Greek word that basically means uh, your, your extended family or your household. Maybe the translation of the Bible you're looking at says your household. Jesus says, stay and tell your household, tell your extended family. This doesn't just mean his children and his wife and his parents. It's sort of that extended group of people uh, upon whom you have influence, right? Jesus says, stay and tell your friends, tell your oikos what the Lord has done. Tell them that he's had mercy upon you. And so it says that the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. He begins to tell the story in the place where he comes from, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. I will tell you, it's easier to get in the boat. In that moment, it's easier to get in the boat and go with Jesus to another town, right? It's hard. It's hard to do ministry in a place where people have seen you with your pants off. And I, I mean that both in kind of a joking way and a very literal way also. The people on this particular side of the Galilee have seen this man at his worst. They've seen him chained up. They've seen him raving lunatic. They've seen him foaming at the mouth. They've seen him in his nakedness and in his demon possession, right? He's got a lot of history with these particular people, and it's hard. It's hard to do ministry among people who've seen you at your worst. But can I also point out to you that, that it's among those people who've seen you with your pants off, it's among those people who've seen you at your worst, foaming at the mouth and raving lunatic, that you have the most profound ability to show the excellencies of him who took you out of the darkness and into the light. You see, if that man had gotten on the boat and went to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, in his right mind, dressed seemingly normal, he'd gotten out on the west side and said, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. He had been just like every other follower of Jesus. Just another plain Jane sort of follower of Jesus. But on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis, this is the guy who this morning was a madman. And this afternoon has been transformed. You see, while it is difficult to do ministry among those who've seen us at our worst, they are also the ones best suited to recognize the transformation. 
they are also the ones best suited to recognize the transformation. That's why the best ministry happens across a coffee table. The best ministry happens in one-on-one conversations with people who know us, who've seen our lives, who've seen the good and the bad, who witnessed us in the ins and outs. The best ministry doesn't happen from the pulpit or whatever you, the podium to a thousand people in a room. Can God use that? Absolutely. Does he use evangelical crusades? He absolutely does. Is it the clearest way to declare the excellencies that took us out of the darkness and into the light? No. Personal relationship is the best place to do that. And that's why Jesus asked this man to stay. It's also why we see such a powerful response when the woman at the well in John 4 goes into her town and tells all the people, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. You think that was embarrassing for her? Probably, because those people knew her reputation, but the transformation was made more profound by the fact that she was sharing it with people who knew her inside and out. Jesus says, stay and talk to your household, talk to your oikos. God made you uniquely to reveal Christ to a particular group that I can't impact in the same way. Let me say it again. Folks, body, family at Fullerton Free, God made you. And it doesn't matter if you're 60. It doesn't matter if you're 16. It doesn't matter if you've been walking with Jesus for a month or you've been walking with Jesus for 80 years. God made you uniquely to impact a group of people that I cannot impact in the same way. I just can't. It would take me too long to build that kind of a relationship. You can bring them here, and by the power of the Spirit of God, I can proclaim the gospel, and and God can break through. But the most powerful thing that God can do in the lives of those that are in your immediate circle is to have you tell them the story of how the Lord has had mercy on you. To have you tell the story of what the Lord has done, that he's taken you out of the darkness and into the light. You are uniquely suited to impact people I could never impact, and I am uniquely suited to impact people you couldn't impact. Because we're each made differently. It's with this understanding in place then. It's with this understanding in place that we as a church. Here we go. Now I'm getting into the practical. I've sort of laid the foundation. Practically, we as a church are prioritizing a strategy called circles. And that's not a fancy word. But it's just meant to point to the idea that each and every one of us have 10 or 15 people right around us who have the closest view of our life. If you think about what we studied in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says we're called to be a light. Right? Let your light so shine among men that they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I want you to think about your life as a light and think about who that light shines on most, uh, uh, most frequently. Right, Just in that direct circle of light. Certainly you've got people back from Kansas City or people in London or whatever that are influenced by you kind of indirectly and sort of intermittently. But let's just think about the circle of light that your light, the light of Christ casts around you. Most people have about 10 or 15. People that are seeing them on a regular basis. That will include probably your family. That will include uh, your coworker, somebody you share a desk with, somebody you work beside regularly. It's probably the person you jog with, the person you work out with. It might be somebody you go hunting with. It might be somebody you play bridge with. I don't know. It's going to be different for each of us. But think about this. God has put those people around you specifically to be influenced by you. They're not there accidentally. The restaurant you always go to, the place where you always get your gas, those people are in your circle, and God has uniquely put them there to be influenced by your transformational story. We as a church are prioritizing these circles as a strategy for our local church to achieve our mission. Our mission, right? Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Fullerton Free is a loving community, united in sacrifice, living like Christ for the glory of God. How do we do that? Do we do it just by repeating that mantra to each other? No, we do it as individuals impacting the people in our circles. 
Over the last year and a half, we've talked about our vision pillars, right? Radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. Revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. Prophetic engagement rooted in demonstrable faith. And unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. How do those things happen? By putting a bunch of banners around our church? No. It doesn't happen by me talking about it until I'm red in the face. It happens when each and every one of us put on those characteristics in our circle. In our circle. And it doesn't matter whether you have a prophetic gift or an evangelistic gift or whether you have... The the only question you have to answer this morning is, have you been transformed by the power of Christ? That's Because your gifts are all going to be different. My gifts are different than yours. It's not about your gifting. It's, It's about your transformation. Have you been transformed? If you've been transformed, you've been transformed so that you can declare the excellencies of him who took you out of the darkness. You have a story to tell. You have a story to tell. We're embracing this idea of circles. And and we believe this happens then in five stages. I'm going to give them to you rapidly because I'm a little bit over my time here or at least a little bit further than I'm supposed to be. There are five stages. And I've talked about these over the last couple of months. But just to cement it in your mind, if you're taking notes, write these five stages down. The first one is identify. Identify. The idea there is that you identify who you are and what your story is. For this man, the story is, I was possessed by a legion of demons and Jesus set me free with the word. I don't know what your story will be, but I've got a story. We all do. A story of transformation. Identify who you are and identify who's in your circle. That's the first step. Just figure out who they are, right? Figure out who you've been called to be salt and light to in your circle, right? Who's your circle? Identify. The second stage. The second stage is inquire. And we studied this idea a couple of weeks ago when we were in Matthew chapter 7. Remember in Matthew chapter 7, it says, Don't judge other people and don't cast your pearls before pigs, but do what? Ask, seek, and knock. So second stage is inquire. And what do we mean by that? Well, we mean inquire of them. Figure out who's in your circle and start talking with them. Talk to them about their story. Talk to them about their successes and their failures, about their fears. Talk to them about their life. Inquire of them who they are. Ask and seek and knock. But not only ask and seek and knock in the relationship with those in your circle, but beyond that, what does it say in Matthew 7? Ask your father, your heavenly father, who will not give a stone to someone who asks for a piece of bread and will not give a serpent to he who asks for a fish, right? Your father in heaven loves you and will give you good gifts. So that second stage inquiry is both an inquiry in the lives of the people in your circle and an inquiry on their behalf before the throne of God. God, will you bless them? God, will you break through? God, will you redeem them? If your children or your spouse, if they're Christians already, you don't have to be praying and inquiring that they would come to know Christ. They may already know Christ. The people in your circle, some of them, may already have a relationship with Jesus. But in that case, the inquiry is about their growth. It's about their conformity to the image of Christ. It's about their own witness to their circles, right? We continue to have an impact in our circle, whether they're believers or non-believers. But we, we identify who they are, and then we inquire. We inquire of them, and we inquire on their behalf before God. The third stage, you can just sort of jot this down, is invest. Invest. And I don't mean handing out cash, although that might be the way to do it, depending on who's in your circle. But the idea, and I've said this before, the idea is that that every person on the planet has one thing in common. Like, if nothing else, we have one thing in common is that everybody on the planet likes it when somebody else washes the dishes. Right? Is there anybody in here who doesn't like it when somebody else, well, you like it when somebody else washes the dishes, right? We all love that. So all I'm suggesting in this third stage is that after you've identified who's in your circle, after you've been praying for them and talking to them, that you would start to wash their dishes. And they might not have any dishes. Maybe you've got to mow their grass. Maybe you've got to clean out their trash cans. Maybe you've got to 
fix their car, take them to the store. I, I actually drove, one of the guys in my circle on, uh, on the day before Thanksgiving, didn't have a, he didn't have a pecan pie. And he was telling me this. And so I, I was free on that particular day. And I drove to Costco and did the lines and all that stuff and bought him a pie and took it to him. Just because he didn't have one, right? That might seem stupid to you, but what's that? That's an investment in my friend. That's an investment that somebody put into my life. It's a $12 pie. It doesn't matter, but it meant all kinds of things to him because he didn't have to go fight the crowds at Costco, right? Invest. Invest in the lives of other people. When we, when we looked at uh, Matthew 7, 6, where it said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Right? The idea there was not that, not that you withhold from people what you think is too valuable for them, but rather that you give them things they actually need. That you actually contribute into their life the things they actually need. Remember the, the verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, at the end in verse 12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. We invest in the lives of other people. Identify, inquire, invest. Two more. The fourth is include. Include. And by that I mean include them in your life. Bring them along. Jesus did this. The, the, the apostles did this. They brought people along with them. Invite people into your life. Listen, this is the kind of thing we can do even in the midst of quarantine. All of this is ministry that can happen in a one-on-one basis, even with a mask on, right? Bring people along. You don't have to do that in a big crowd. You can do it in a tiny group. You bring people along. Not only do you include them in your life, but you intentionally look for ways to be included in theirs. It isn't just about me saying, hey, everybody come and sit at my table. It's also about me looking for opportunities to go, how can I sit at your table? How can I, how can I be a part of your life? There's in- inclusion there. Identify, inquire, invest, include. And then the final stage, the fifth stage, is introduce. Introduce them to Jesus or introduce them to the way of a disciple. If they're already a believer in Jesus, introduce them to the deeper ways of walking with Christ. But there's an introduction that will be made. If you're, if you're praying for people and you're investing in their life and you're including them in what you're doing, I guarantee you there is a moment where they'll go, why are you like this? I've had these conversations. They go, why did you go get me a pie or whatever? It's a dumb example. But when they ask the question, don't dodge it. When somebody says, why are you like this? The answer is, I was a stark, raving, mad lunatic, chained up and bound, a slave to sin and death, and the Lord Jesus has set me free. You don't have to say it like that, because that might freak them out. But you say, did you know me before? Do you know me now? Jesus did that. Introduce them to Jesus. All you do is declare. It's just a story. It's your story to tell. It's different than my story. The story of how I've been transformed by Christ. That's what that fifth stage is, introduce. Our expectation as a church is that everyone who considers this church their home will actively engage in this method. So this isn't like a thing we're hoping you'll try. This is me saying, this is it. We're putting all our eggs in this basket. Across the board, ministry, bottom to top, the emphasis going forward will be the empowerment of the saints for the work of the ministry that they will identify their circle and inquire of God on those people's behalf, that they'll invest and include and introduce. Will we still do large group gatherings? Absolutely. And as soon as we're able to get back in this room, we'll be thrilled to do so. But those large group gatherings, adult fellowships, small groups, core groups, all of those things serve the ministry of the church. They aren't the ministry of the church. They're a piece of it, but they're not the primary. The primary is me declaring the excellencies of he who took me out of the darkness into his light in my circle. So your question may be, how do I get started? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I'm not sure that you asked, but how do I get started? If you're asking, 
beginning in late January, beginning in February, I'm going to be inviting every person who considers this church home to have a one-on-one conversation. One of the things that happens in a big church sometimes is it's easy for people to get lost. And one of our priorities in the coming year is that everyone would be known. So we're setting up one-on-one conversations, probably into January, beginning of February, one-on-one conversations uh, with a group of people we're calling compasses, right? Think about a compass. A compass is something that helps you draw your circle, and it also helps you navigate north, south, east, and west, right? We're setting up a team of volunteers that that are just going to be available for one-on-one meetings. In fact, some of you may want to be compasses. But the goal is that you would meet, every person in our church would set up a one-hour meeting with a compass just to sort of help them draw their circle, Figure out who your circle is and get oriented to who you are and who God has called you to have an impact on. Our hope is that in 2021, we will initiate 700 of these one-on-one conversations. I think that's a reasonable goal if we're asking every person in our church to be involved. Hopefully, we pass that 700 number. The goal is that we would raise up a team of about 70 of these compasses to have these identifying conversations to encourage and equip people to impact their circle. The goal is also we're anticipating that there are some that will get into those uh, compass conversations and they'll end up realizing that they're already doing great ministry. We'll have the opportunity to endorse that or be able to get behind ministries that they're prepared to start. We'll be able to meet up with people who maybe don't know Christ yet and lead them to Christ. We're hoping that we would see people come to Christ as a result of this in the coming year. But we're hoping that every person will meet with one of these compasses to help draw their circle and orient themselves to the role of an ambassador. We're hoping to do 700 of these meetings. We're we're publishing a strategy guide about circles that we're hoping to have ready to go at the beginning of February that will be written by our team. And it's just little tools to help you in this endeavor. We're hoping to be a different kind of a church in the future where our Sunday gatherings serve the most important ministry of our church rather than being the most important ministry of our church. Our Sunday gatherings serve the most important ministry of our church rather than being the most important ministry. I'll finish with this. If you go to Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, verse 31, the very next time Jesus goes to the region of the Decapolis, when he gets there, there are crowds of people that are bringing him the sick and the lame and the blind. Now, remember, the last time he was in the region of the Decapolis, they were asking him to get out of town. When he goes back, In Mark chapter 7, verse 31, people are bringing him the sick and the lame to be healed, and they're marveling at who he is. You get to Mark chapter 8, and we see a story called the feeding of the 4,000. There are two two miraculous feedings in the New Testament, the feeding of the 5,000, which is the more famous one, and the feeding of the 4,000. The feeding of the 4,000 happens on the east side of the Sea of Galilee amongst the Hellenistic Jews. So... The people that were previously asking Jesus to leave, the people who were begging him to get out of town, now among that same group of people, there are over 4,000 who are gathered to hear him teach that he has compassion on to feed. You can read that story in Mark chapter 8. My question for you today is, how did they go from being a community of people who wanted to get rid of Jesus to being a community of people who were hungry to be influenced by Jesus? I can't say for sure, but I'll tell you one way I know for certain was utilized. And it's the testimony of this one man. This one man in Mark chapter 5 who was chained and bound and naked and gross. Who was transformed by Christ. That Jesus didn't let get in the boat and leave that area. But he turned back. That man began to talk to his oikos. He began to talk to his household, his extended friends, his circle. And as a result, by the time Jesus returns to the region, there are thousands of people who aren't afraid of Jesus, but they're anxious to hear what he would bring them and to be transformed by him as well. That's what we're after in the coming year and in the years to follow. I hope that you'll join me in championing all of these things in the days ahead because we believe that this is the most biblical way 
to do gospel ministry in the years and decades ahead. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the transformative effect it has upon our life. I thank you that each of us have a story to tell. And I pray, God, that we would resist the temptation to to run away from those who know us best. And instead, we would hear your call to turn back to our circle and declare the excellencies of you who took us out of the darkness and into the light. Tell other people what the Lord has done for us and the mercy that you've had upon us. And that we would see this city and this state transformed by a priesthood of believers, a ministry of believers. We're following your model. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.